This is the 19th season of Bass Talk Live. BTL is presented by Bass Cat Boats, Striking Lures, Aftco, Pro Guide Batteries, X Zone Lures, Shoreline Boat and RV Repair, Spro, Gamakatsu, Big Bite Baits, The Bass Tank, Denali Rods, Beatdown Outdoors, and Sunline. BTL, coming at you. Good morning and welcome to another exciting edition of BTL Bass Talk Live, where we are going to talk about bass fishing. A lot going on this past weekend. We had kind of the final major event of the 2023 season go down, and that would be the Toyota Championship on Table Rock. Uh, as expected, uh, Jig, Damiki Rig, Alabama Rig, a lot of offshore stuff that played. Uh, actually, tomorrow we are going to have uh, Rick Harris on the show. I'm actually going to film it immediately following today's show because I am headed to Table Rock for a, a OBT Employees Week. And we're having like a little tournament there. So I paid like a lot of close attention to what's going on on Table Rock. It's just like 10 boats, completely informal. But uh, Rick is uh, on I-40 driving past Eufaula now. So then he's going to be in studio and uh, we're going to talk all about that. I think he's also fishing the uh, MLF Invitationals next year. So we'll talk about uh, Rick fishing the MLF Invitationals. Uh, good show today. A uh, guy that I've known for a long time. Uh, and a longtime professional angler on pretty much uh, every circuit that you can fish on, and that's James Niggemeyer. But before we get to James, I do want to point out, and I have to share the screen here, I know that it's been kind of a long time coming, but we'll share the screen right there. So this is the snubowling.com, Southern Nazarene University, where Mark Jeffries, who hosted BTL for 17 years, is now the head coach. And it had been, I'd been a little, a little bit upset at him because BTL is an official sponsor of the SNU Crimson Storm. And on the website, I said, dude, I said, where's the logo? I said, I put up some BTL money for this and I, I don't see the logo anywhere. So there you go. Right there. If you see right there where I'm circling, there it is. Uh, Night and Industry, Cow and Construction, and BTL, now a premium supporter of SNU Bowling. So if you guys are into the Ocho, ESPN 8, maybe some fringe sports, if you want to go to the schedule, they're actually in Fort Worth this weekend. So if you guys have any uh, desire, if uh, they're in, uh, oh, they go to St. Clair. Oh, no, they go to Fairview Heights, Illinois, Dallas, Fort Worth, Plano, Kansas City, San Antonio, and they're in Fort Worth this weekend. So if any of you guys have a burning desire to go check out <clears throat> the one and only Mark Jeffries and the SNU, bowling there's all the uh there's all the info for that but all right let's bring uh let's bring today's guest in james thanks for jumping on btl man hey thanks for having me matt it's good to be back it it is it, it we we've had you off and on for heck the last 12 years 15 years ever since you how long have you been doing this would you consider yourself a professional tournament angler well the last time i mean like the i guess since 2006 was really yeah. the first time that I just didn't do anything other than fish tournaments. I mean, I still did some guiding on and off throughout that, was, that period, but 2006 was 
kind of uh, kind of the, the year I, I would. Were you one of, of the OG Elite Series guys? Were you on that 2006 rookie class? No, I was. I was the next year. So okay. I was seven. Okay, so that 2007 was that have been the Remitz year where he started off by winning like with a hundred pounds, and then he started like what first and second like in his first two. Yep, that's it. That's definitely it. So your first tournament was Amistad in its prime. Yes, yes, and um, and and I had a horrible event. My very first elite event was just tragic. What do you remember <laughs> about that? Well, I remember eating dinner with Greg Gutierrez and Jared Lintner at a uh, Mexican restaurant buffet style and having to jump off onto the bank three different times that day. And I had a oh, guy you had from- food poisoning your first day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was bad. And G- Greg and Jared both got it. Greg, uh, I think, got it on the water, was throwing up the second day. And I think Jared was pulling off on the way back to California and throwing up on the way back from there on the road. Oh, so I just oh, looked it up. You finished. I mean, I'm not rubbing it in, but you finished dead last like, in your first elite. That, like dead, dead I, last. I want to say I had six pounds the first day. Yeah. Like, how do you do that on Amistad when it's in its um, just absolute prime? But yeah, that was, the, it took 47 pounds to make, or it took over 35 pounds just to make the top uh, 50 cut. In that event, that was the one that Remitz won with 111 pounds. There were 400 pound bags. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. So I should have done my research before this. I wouldn't have brought that one up, James. I, I'll, I'll take the L on that one. No, I went and I went on and made the top 10 at the next one. So I kind of redeemed myself there. At, at, of course, that's going home to the Delta. So I guess nobody really um, or going back to where I used to live, I should say. That was a hell of a schedule that first year. That was an insane schedule for the for the Elite Series. Well, you know, I just to kind of give you kind of some backstory. I just fished the Classic, and then and that's when you used their boats. And then Basscat delivered my boat here, and then we went to Amistad, and then after that, you had on to the Delta, then Clear Lake, and then I had another bad one at, at Clear Lake. So it was completely a roller coaster season for my first year on on the elites it had amistad in its prime <clears throat> then you went to the delta then clear lake then there was the pride of georgia but then gunnersville uh grand in its prime like that was the cranking football head when like you could just if you looked wrong at a secondary point you caught 15 pounds off of it uh what i mean am i wrong then do you remember that i mean that was pretty of course if you you know for those that know how i like to fish i went to the bushes and i want to say i got paid out of the bushes there the water was high enough i didn't i didn't do what whatever i I guess van dam won that cranking if i remember right yeah yeah but then uh champlain erie potomac river that was fishing good and then wrapped up in florida Mm-hmm. and you if top 10 that one yeah if i remember right i f- missed the classic by like 45 points and i had three just bombs of all bombs <laughs> that had to be a in all of professional bass fishing and we're going back 14 years so obviously i'm sure there's been some others but i'm going to throw flw and elite series in there that's got to be one of the top five schedules of all time the 2007 elite series schedule as far as 
fisheries in their prime, diversity of fisheries, big bass fisheries, and coast to coast. I mean, you guys went literally California to New York, to Florida, to yeah. South Texas. And th that was when it was an 11-event series. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was it still a was it still a 5k entry fee back then? Yes. Yeah, it was actually So that was 55,000 to fish that year. So you're going 11 events, you're in Texas and you're going California to New York to Florida in your first year as like a full-time touring pro. Yeah. That Trial had to be stressful. <laughs> yeah. That totally. Because, I mean, we're talking about guys who are like, hey, we don't go out west because of the cost. You got guys like this year in the opens that are like, man, I don't want to have to drive. You know, we have to go out to South Carolina twice and then down to Florida and then up to Michigan. That is a coast-to-coast -coast schedule. Do you remember how many miles you put on? No, it was all such a blur. Really, well, I was just so, obviously, just it was my dream, thankful to be be there, uh, excited about everything. And, um, no, I, I, it, I don't remember a whole lot other than just trying to catch them because, <laughs> because that's what they did is catch them. <laughs> uh, and I talked to you a lot. Uh, I talked to you a lot as the year has, uh, progressed, obviously, I mean, you've been a, a full-time pro for a long time and you were one of the guys who took the jump full-time into the opens this past year. Uh, not as fun as it appeared at the beginning of the year, was it? No, um, no, I, I, it was, I had a, a really, really hard year. I, I like the schedule. Um, of course schedules, I, I don't really put away a lot on schedules because some of the places you think you're going to absolutely have a great event, you don't and vice versa. So I don't really put a lot of, but I mean, I thought the schedule played out well on paper and, um, but, um, but yeah, it was uh, it was different. The nine event series fishing the opens is is um, you know it's a different it's a different animal. But the I mean, you know, we talked about the differences of you know what it was going to take to finish in the top nine, mm -hmm. and um, we were way off. By the way, we were hugely off. Like they yeah, it took like forty third place I think average, and I thought it would be, and you thought it would be. I think I said 55th or something. And you were like, man, I think it might even creep down to like 60 to 65 place average. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, and I had talked to some people and some people that actually really did a lot of research and, um, you know, pencil to paper and, and crunch numbers and all that. And cause I don't do that, but uh, they, they were thinking that there would be some cannibalism, but it just, it just never, that never happened. It just continued. And the guys that were catching just caught them all the way through. And um, it was a pretty, it was a, it was an impressive run by these guys. I mean, a real impressive run. It was. We're going to actually get into that because that's kind of what spurred uh, me wanting to have you on. You're a, a, one of a handful of guys who, I mean, you're, you've done this for decades. I mean, there were a bunch of guys in there. Like you could circle 20 to 30 guys, you know, like the Greg Bohannon's and, mcmillan's and yourself and hell i'll throw charlie hartley in there even though he fishes them for fun regardless of what whatever he's doing he just loves to catch a bass but uh 
it came kind of down to experience because as a guy who's covered it, I mean, I've watched you fish. I've watched a lot of these guys fish. I've written about it. I've covered it. And I think in bass fishing, there's always been kind of a deal as you pay your dues, you go through the process, you get your butt kicked, you learn, you get better. And then all of a sudden you kind of reach a level where you kind of have a one up on the new guys coming in and they have to go through that whole process. And then you have those, depending on whether you want to Rick Clunnett or Tommy Bifflett or whatever, those 10 to 15 or all the way up to 30 years of, I know what's going on here and I'm either going to grind it out or catch them. And those guys, you know, I got a leg up on them. It, I mean, you talk about not looking at stats, but it's hard not to look at the stats statistically from an age wise. That doesn't mean a hill of beans anymore. It doesn't. It's and and that that kind of snuck up on me. Uh, I guess it's, it's something that's happened in the last three plus years or so, where um, understanding uh, fisheries and their personalities and characteristics, and those types of things that uh, that y- you know you you get to learn over years of of fishing these different places and traveling around the country, just really didn't have a whole lot of. Uh, of value. It, it, it really, it, not to me, it didn't. I just felt like, uh, um, you know, the guys that, that could come in just totally fresh, they just, they just did way better. What do you remember about your learning process in the late nineties, the early two thousands, as you were coming up, did you feel the progression and the momentum building? And was it, a, were you completely, uh, uh, was it was it like foreign to you going to these things and seeing the Larry Nixons and Mark Davises and all that at these invitationals? And then was there a moment where you were like, okay, I, I'm hanging with them and I feel like I'm one of the guys and holy cow, now I can beat some of these guys. I mean, it was, was there a big separation when you jumped in, in, in those late nineties, early two thousands? Um, yeah, absolutely. There was. I, I know when I moved out here from California, I fished the, the Invitationals, the Central Invitationals, and I remember finishing like thirty something in. Uh, gosh, I want to say that was like two thousand and two or three, somewhere in there. And um, there was like I want to say fifteen guys that were fishing the top one hundred and fifty because this was pre the elites mm-hmm. or top one hundred. That might be top one hundred. And, and I was like, well, why, you know, why are these guys fishing this thing? And, and, uh, you know, just those questions that a lot of people would ask and, you know, they're, they're making it more difficult for a guy like myself to break in there. Um, but I, you know, fishing the Western invitationals, you know, on the West coast, a lot of, some of those guys came out West and, and fished some of those. So I, I got used to seeing them, but there was still that man. Um, there was that definite, gosh, those guys just have an understanding of what's going on. And, and I'm just still trying to cut my teeth and, and trying to break into this whole thing. And it was a, I think it was a super, you know, the learning curve was just, was huge for me. You know, it, it really was. Uh, for those who, who haven't listened to every BTL over the last five years, it was three or four years ago, I think we had you on where you kind of went through your uh, progression, California, Wanted to be a professional angler. Let me see if I get any of this wrong. Interrupt me. California young kid wanted to be a professional angler. Talked to Dean Rojas at a sports expo. Said, "What do I need to do to do this?" He said, "You need to get the hell off the West Coast and move somewhere else. Move down to Texas. Started guiding. Met a couple key guys. Was Mark Pack one of those guys? 
yep. that you met, started guiding on Fork and the surrounding areas, cut your teeth there, and then worked into the tournament. Is that a 30-second truncated version of how it went down? Yeah, yeah, that would be that'd be real close. Yep. That's that's what it Which was. Which is wild. So go back, Google that show if you want a whole hour long. Because that is a fascinating story of someone who who chased their dreams. I don't think a lot of people think of you as a West Coast guy. You're a, you're a West Coast guy. Yeah, I've been here long enough that, you know, since 01. So I've been here long enough to, I think people just, just say I'm a Texas guy. I mean, even when I fished the elites, nobody ever said I was. They never clumped me. Whenever they, whenever they had, like, these are the West Coast guys, I was never in, the, in that conversation. That bother you? No. I mean, that's just, I think it's just because... A lot of the guys, well, like Rojas moved to Texas or he bought a house in Texas, but he moved back to Arizona. And I think when those guys came onto the scene, they were mostly West Coasters that that made their name then. And it took me a lot longer road to, before I made it to the tour level. And so by that time, I was already I was already a Texas, Texas guy. guy. Was the first guy to go from the West Coast to Texas, Gary Klein? Yes, because then I would say next would be Jay Yellis. Yeah, and he was or Corvallis, Oregon. Yes, and then he moved to Arizona and he fished all the Colorado River stuff and just cleaned up. And then everyone just decided, hey, let's just not go to Texas anymore and let's go to Alabama. That was like the whole next, the next wave of those guys that kind of started with Aaron. Yeah. Yep. Which and now so much more centrally located. Uh, man, I, I, if I was, you know, if, if, if my connection would have led me there, I probably, probably be there now. Yeah. And then everyone was like, oh, well, there's too many people in Alabama now. Texas was long forgotten. So now everyone's up in Tennessee. <laughs> it's right. Like, it's gone. The group moved to Texas and the group moves to Alabama. I mean, you know, you got like the Mark Daniels juniors and those guys that, that went to Alabama. And now there's a bunch of the guys that are up in that whole Tennessee area around Chickamauga, which I really like that area. It's beautiful. A lot of lakes, just different stuff. Yeah. Um. So that is a, a little bit of the backstory there, but you're talking about the progression, and this is the thing that shocked me. And we've seen young kids come up, but it seems like you can kind of put your finger on them. You can see a Jacob Wheeler at 19 years old. You can see a Brandon Polinick in a Bass Nation at at 20. You see like Justin Lucas coming up through, you know, the National Guard team at the FLW. Uh, maybe there was a little bit of signs of this specifically over on, uh, FLW. If you look at last year's, uh, Toyota championship, and if you pay attention to those triple A's over there and the number of 20 somethings that are dominating those leagues and qualifying for championships and top 20 championships. But this was really the first year on the opens where it was like, uh, well, eight of the nine are 28 or younger. And we're talking a full nine division field. Is that strictly live scope? Is that strictly information? Or did we just get a crazy good young crop of anglers that all got on a heater this year, James? Yes. <laughs> no, I think it's a culmination of all those things. Honestly, I think definitely the electronics thing is huge because um, never before in the sport has there been something that could literally reduce the learning curve. Um, and, and, and open up a whole new group of fish to, to anglers that, uh, that, that really never even targeted them. So, you know, and a way in which to fish that was so 
different than you know we all we all had to we all kind of looked at the lake through a grid of okay it's this time of year they ought to be doing this and and uh, and i'm not gonna say they threw that out the window but you know it was and my they threw it out the window yeah i mean <laughs> and really in my understanding because i'm not great with forward facing stuff but i can do it and it's fun and i really like it and i'm and contrary to what people would think i'm an advocate for it staying mm -hmm. around um but my point is is that it looked like people were just looking for areas that had bait and fish population and life and then just figured it out as they went um which is i mean i can remember you know i mean just the way i think of things is well i'm going to look for the type of banks the type of cover the type of uh the type of um verticalness or whatever mm -hmm. the, depending on the time of year i'm going to look for certain things channels whatever and and then try to find fish there well they, they just went in a whole nother whole nother way in my opinion all right so you've you fished through the side imaging and down imaging era like that was going on right there around what i mean was that what 2007 2008 uh that was when like five six but there I were i mean there was a period when you're fishing where there was guys who were good at side imaging and guys who didn't even have side imaging yeah i want to say the first time i heard about it was oh six literally the first time i heard heard about it oh six oh seven somewhere in there but nobody was like blowing the doors off anything or making it a way in which to to not only do really well cash checks but actually win I want to say until 12, 13, 14. Do you think that that's the truth? Or do you think that there were guys that were, but we didn't have Instagram and Facebook and live on the water three days and 35 live shows where winners were getting interviewed instantly afterwards. And maybe that gold rush existed. It was just kept quiet for half a decade longer. Yeah. And, and take it a step further. Like when I started, the only way you really found out anything is if you read the pages of FLW or Bass Times and to look at that that technique breakdown or uh, what the top three, four or five guys did. And and that's all you really knew. And if so, if it wasn't completely on the up and up, if there was, you know, leaving out some stuff intentionally, you just you just didn't really didn't learn as much today. You know, uh, obviously, with with everything, it just it tells the story real quick. And and there's no there's no slanting in any direction or so. Yeah, it could have been guys were doing really well with it earlier before that, but it just really seemed like that's when it kind of came onto the scene and, and, or when it really made a big splash was those, those later years. I think it'll be interesting to see how this evolves, James, because now everybody knows it. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, everyone at the top level, you're talking about, Holy cow. I did it this way this year. This is how it went down. We just saw what went down at the Toyota. We've seen how everything's gone down in the opens instantly it'll be interesting to see if there's a change because now you'll have a lot more people doing the same thing on the water with the live like there it seems like nature has a way of protecting itself though right you can listen to guys going to be like oh the fisheries are going to be decimated all these fish have never been caught my belief is that they're going the fish are going to go all right well no one's jacked with this for 20 years out here now they are now let's go somewhere else where no one else is looking <laughs> You know what I mean? Is that a fair assessment? Like, will there always be a cutting edge way to catch them? Here's what I think. So I'm going to say 2010 through 15 there, right in there. I mean, 
we used to catch them on 2D straight below the boat. And if you found them like that, you'd catch almost every one of them. Just drop them straight down. I mean, An whether arch. I'm on pork or smallmouth up north, it didn't matter. Like we, that's how we did it. We, you know, you get right over top of the structure, drop it straight down on them. Texas rig football jig. You could catch those fish. I can't remember the last time I caught one like that. And those fish are the same thing. I think just we're looking forward now. We're, we're, and I think that that's something that's going to happen. Those fish are going to wise up. I mean, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'll catch a fish every now and again and I'll look mm -hmm. at, I'll see duty and I'll drop down on a hill, eat it or, or, you know, down scan, whatever you want to call it. But it used to be a whole way of which we caught fish out and, and that doesn't work hardly ever anymore like even if you graph a, a spot now you're just asking to wise them up and catch fewer 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 and fewer fish so i do think that in five years or so the the forward facing is not going to be as is as, as potent not nearly going to be as potent as it as it is at this particular time is it always going to be a tool absolutely and guys will figure out a way to to make it work for them and but i don't i do think right now it's people are striking while the iron's hot and and they're they're doing really well with it. So um, I've been kind of one of those guys that's been slow to embrace new technology and new baits and different things like that. I kind of like to go to what I'm comfortable and what I'm familiar with and not experiment too tremendously. But over the years, I'm getting more and more to where, to where I'm embracing the new stuff more faster. So um, I definitely think things are going to change moving forward. All right, uh, we're going to take our first break of the show when we come back talking with James Nigemeyer on a Monday. Uh, we'll talk about what your plans are for next year and the reality of trying to make a living fishing, uh, whether it be the Bassmaster Opens, the Pro Circuit, the Toyotas, uh, and what you think the organizations have done well or what needs to happen for a guy who's got a family like you with title sponsors, well-known brand recognition, moves product, a staple in the industry to stick around for another 30 years uh, and make this thing work. So BTL on a Monday, we'll be back right after this. The new Puma STS has been redesigned from the ground up. With the angler, design, function, and performance in mind, nothing on this new offering was compromised, and the only thing carried over from the previous version is the name. Based on the soft touch series hull that started with the flagship Jaguar, this new model is nimble and performs incredibly well at all speeds with either a 250 or 300 horsepower engine. Featuring a new 96 inch wide body footprint, this hull measures out at 20 foot 7 inches in length. Industry leading design coupled with tournament winning performance. The Puma STS from Basscat. Feel the rush. If you're a construction worker, soccer dad, soccer mom, you want to be outdoors, you've seen the Reaper. This right here is the Zip Up Full Reaper, but it's windproof, folks, windproof. And it actually has the mask built in. It's behind me. I mean, if you can look good and feel good and stay warm, you better check it out. It's the Zip Up Reaper. That's right, windproof. Elite Series Pro, Daryl Gleason here. My Pro Guide batteries keep me going on those long tournament days and long practice days. Always plenty of juice, never fail. 
The best part about ProGuide Batteries, it's the people behind the company. They have over 40 years experience in the battery business, keeping all of us fishermen out on the water longer, catching more fish. Check them out at ProGuideBatteries.com. What's up, Bass Talk Live fans? Brandon Polinick here. And ever since I won a couple Bassmaster Elite Series events on X-Zone Lures, I've been getting a bunch of questions of what makes them so special and different. And really, the truth is, it's in the details. The little details, things like no cheap fillers in their plastic, that gives you more lifelike action, more realistic and vibrant colors. But don't just take my word for it. Go to www.xzonelures.com and check them out for yourself. The great thing about the new Sensation Soft Plastics from Big Bite Baits, heavily scented, super soft, buoyant, comes in seven great new shapes. I've got a couple of them of my signature series, the Cliffhanger Worm and the Ramtail Craw. Great for a flipping jig, football jig, swim jig, all that. Several other great shapes. Really excited about it. We've worked over the last year. Catches fish all over the country, and I think it's going to catch fish for people everywhere you try it. The Spro Little John crankbait has been around for almost 15 years and it is one of my go-to crankbaits whenever I need a fish in the boat so you can never have enough new colors. That's why Spro is coming out with a handful of new colors including Pearl Shad which has this bleached out white look but it's got this pearlescent really really pretty. We've got Copper Shad which looks amazing in the water. It's got that purple flake on the back really really pops in the water. And then if you want some real pop, we've got Sparkle Shad, nothing but sparkles all over this thing. And then last but not least, we've got the Matte Sexy Shad, just a really different looking color for a crankbait. So you wanna give them a little different look, that Matte Sexy Shad is definitely the one to go with. All these colors are available in the original Little John and the MD. All right, we are back, BTL on a Monday, talking with James Ziegemeyer. And before I left, I posed kind of an interesting question because it's a quadri because you want to get back to uh, the Bassmaster Elite Series, which I would assume was the obvious reason why you fished all nine opens. And I mean, unless you just have a, an issue with self-loathing. Yeah, absolutely. The the, uh, the goal is to, to get back to the elites, for sure. Um, and, and really that's you know that's the way to that's way to um you know to increase your exposure so that you're more valuable to your sponsors because at that level obviously there's more exposure there's obviously more uh financial um benefit from winnings and checks and different things like that as opposed to uh staying um at the opens level or um or wherever those pre-qualifying rounds or, or qualifying levels like that, obviously uh, that's not a place to, to stick around for too long. For sure. Yeah. I've, I've learned that the hard way, James, <laughs> but I'm not saying that it's, I can't, any, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm, I'm just saying, you know, that's not, that's definitely not the goal. <laughs> no. Um, sponsor wise. And I asked this to, to everybody. Who's, I may even ask it to the guys at the top level. Like, is that a difficult uh, I mean, I know you're with, uh, with GSM and Yamamoto and all that. Is that a, is that an interesting conversation as far as like, are they like you have X number of years to make it or are they behind you a hundred percent or do you, have you found other ways to increase your level of exposure and value or with Bass's increased exposure at the open level, which I, I would 
I, I would love to see the numbers. We got that Thursday. Are they and other sponsors happy with what they've seen as far as a return at that opens level right now? Well, I do think that um, in order for you, for a guy to like, I left the pro circuit, moved over here, yep. and and I feel like um, you know for for your sponsors to be behind you, they're believing in you as as the brand, you as the person that they're behind. I mean, obviously, it it helps if you're on a bigger stage, and you can you know you can increase like I said your value and your your uh, your impression numbers and different things like that. So that's that's also really good, but you also have to, to, um, to just be more well-rounded as a whole. We've talked about that and, and that's been something that's been said in our industry forever, but, you know, doing the social media, going to the events and, um, working sponsor events and going when you don't make the classic or whatever, just working the booth there at the classic, going to ICAST, just being, uh, involved in supporting them in every way that you can. And, um, being present in whenever they're working on whatever it is, uh, being just increasing your value to them and being more available. And then I have to believe that uh, there's some better things to come uh, uh, for Bass. I, I don't know that uh, that that opens will always look this way. And I'm hoping that there's going to be some different things that um, I'm hoping that I'll make the elites this year, but yeah. for next year. But if it if I don't, um, I definitely am hopeful that they're going to do some different things that'll make this level um, even more appealing. And and um, and as well, I definitely like what they've done. They've they've increased the uh, the exposure level at, for the opens, and they've done some different things that I think has uh, made it uh, more attractive to be at the opens as well. Yeah, uh, one of the things I was on the uh, Andrew Upshaw, we had Hank Weldon on uh, Upshaw show, and we kind of grilled him on a bunch of stuff. But one of the things I think is cool is that live uh, FS1 and, and live stream footage for all nine. I don't know if it's FS1 for all nine events. It might be. It might just be three that. But the live stream for all nine of the opens, uh, that way when you have a good derby you can actually say hey here here's the numbers here it is and actually show that value to the sponsors who still find it important to see you uh on tv i know there's so much that goes on behind it that's typically just the carrot on top it just so happens to be the one thing that everybody kind of kind of sees uh when it when it comes to assessing value but uh i think the nine is good and then also the the increased payout uh just that five thousand for 13th to 30th on a 200 dollar additional entry fee i think is good because five thousand and this sounds awful this is how beaten down you are at the open level but heck you can break even at five thousand <laughs> There's a lot to be said for that. I mean, because the reality is, is you're, um, you know, I, I remember when I first made the elites and I was talking to Takahiro about, because we used to, you know, we used to camp a lot together and I've known Takahiro for a long time. And he's, he always stressed the value of, or the importance of surviving. And when you do an increased payout like that, it helps you survive through the lean times on you know if you're taking each category like the expenses from a tournament uh segment of your uh you know of what you do you want that every segment to be super valuable and super um beneficial financially so whenever they're doing an increase like that that all all that helps everything helps so that's a step in the right direction no doubt i've obviously always been impressed with your ability to 
take such a positive attitude, at least outwardly. I don't know. I mean, it might frustrate you, but outwardly, you're always so professional and so friendly. But was it tough going into this year after missing it by like two points last year at Sam Rayburn and having everybody sitting there, I guess, two years ago now? And I mean, you did what you needed to do. It just it was just a literally it came down basically to a coin flip. Uh uh, one side in, one side out, and then being like, dang it, I got to go through nine of these things this year now. <laughs> like that would have been hard for me mentally to get over, especially having been there on both sides for so many years. Oh, absolutely. I, I That was probably, I mean, if you do this long enough, you're going to have some disappointments. There's yeah. no doubt. But that was one of the, obviously it's the freshest in memory, but that, that really hurt. I mean, I, I, because it was one of those things, I, we're standing around and several guys, you're in. I don't see anybody else that's going to challenge you. You're in. You you know, guys are wanting to high five you and congratulations and all that. And I'm like, whoa, just because you can't take back those high fives, you know. And But it, in reality, I was like, am I not seeing something? And then when Hank got up and said, well, as far as the, uh, you know, the elite berths are concerned, we're, there's still some things that are in play. And that, that's when I was like, oh, no. And so, uh, yeah, that 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 was things, man. There's no way. I mean, Nick LeBron was kind of in that same. Was it kind of you and Nick LeBron ended up kind of being the first two guys out? Yeah, yeah. And I want to say there was just one other guy. I can't remember right off the top of my head, but yeah, we were the we were standing there, and, and he and he he was like, "Hey, if, if I don't make it, I hope you do," because obviously he's fishing the BPT and he qualified. He had a you know phenomenal year last year. Phenomenal. And um, so he's like, man, if I don't make it, I hope you do. And so we were kind of just waiting around, standing around. I really felt like, you know, because I was in fourth going into the second day and I did better on the second day. So I'm thinking, but I mean, some guys did even better that were behind jumps from behind up that had fallen. And then it's easier to go from a hundredth to 30th. Right. So that's, they, yeah, absolutely. It's things. Um, it, you know, you talk about being positive, obviously uh, it's so super important to be, to be positive and, and just to choose that mental outlook, because the reality is you can look around and find the things that are brought there, the problems with things, no matter what it is you're doing. And I feel like if you let that stuff just sit there and permeate in your brain, then you're not going to be as excited to go catch them. You know? excited to do the things that you once found to, to really love and, and all of it just kind of wears on your overall performance, whether you're representing your sponsors or at a tournament trying to catch one. So I try to do everything I can to keep my mind focused on the positive things. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I take assessment, you know, I take a category, like look at it and just say, okay, these are definite problems here. Hopefully they get better, but you, you know, you can't turn a blind eye to stuff, but you also yeah. have to, you just have to choose to to look at the positives. You really do. And and I want to talk this. We're talking about on the water, right? Because I mean, there's a whole nother in the weeds off the water, and and then I talk. But I'm talking about on the water, and I say this because I probably talk to you once a practice, maybe twice a practice, and it's very general. But you're always very positive. Like you're like, even if you're having a sucky practice, and I'm, I, I'm very quick to say, screw this place. Like the Jordan, the Jordan Lee, this lake sucks hat. Uh, and it always, every time I'm like, dude, the guy is like genuinely positive. Cause okay. Like let's, let's break down like the uh, Lake of the Ozarks. Right. 
Like, yeah, that was not an easy tournament, at least for me during practice. Um, and I talked to you, but it was amazing how you were like, dude, I've had a couple positive things happen. And like, I was like, dang, James is really looking forward to this tournament <laughs> because you, you had like grabbed onto a couple things. And that's what I'm saying. Like, is it hard to stay that positive? Cause I was like, I don't know which freaking dock these things are under. I guess I'll just skip every damn one and hope that five eat it. But you seem positive, whereas I like resigned myself to the fact that I was going to skip docks the whole time. I was like, I wish I could have such a positive outlook like you had where you were like, man, I've seen some things. If it happens, it could be epic. Yeah. And the thing that I've learned over the years of being out there is, and this is where I kind of lay my hopes in, you know, as far as tournament competitive wise is you just really never know until till you get out there and apply, say, tournament pressure to it, your pressure to the fish you found or the areas you found, what you're really going to uncover, what you're going to really bring in or what you're going to catch, the bites you're going to get, and different things like that. So I definitely try to color my, my expectations or hopes for the tournament with you don't know what's all there. Hopefully it's better than you think it is. Now, granted, I've had many where I was like, wow, I really thought this was a lot better than it actually was. But yeah, just try to, to just remain, you know, that in the mindset that I don't know everything that's out there. I don't know everything that I've uncovered. And I love it when, you know, it's like Christmas day and it's just a gift that's bigger than, than you could ever imagine. And that's, that's why I try to be, I don't always end up there. And um, I'm, I'm excited excited that you think that I'm always optimistic because I want to be. <laughs> no, you are. But here's where I here's where I struggle. Okay, let's break down. And I think a lot of guys do too. Talk about the difference between practicing an area and then tournament pressure and how you assess whether, hey, this area has potential and I'm going to come back and fish it or whether it's, is this phrase a red herring or what is the phrase a false albacore? No, I think that's a type of fish. What red where you like catch one and then you convince yourself that you're going to win the dang tournament off it. And you go back and you never get any bites. I am always in a battle in my mind. Like how hard do I practice? How much do I leave on the unknown? That's a thing that like I need to get better at. So how do you just, you said tournament pressure versus what you do in practice, break down how you determine or what gives you clues that an area has potential in practice and then walk through the process of the difference between what you do on a Tuesday versus what you do on Thursday morning in that same area. So number one is I'm going to try to fish with a little bit faster boat speed. And then if I get into an area and, and I get a bite quick, like just pretty quick, I'm, I'm already thinking, okay, there's, there's the potential for more fish here because if I get bit pretty quick, that's, that's always going to kind of, alert me to, okay, there's probably more fish here because I got bit so fast. Then the next thing is I want to, I want to at least get one more bite to say, okay, that just wasn't a fluke. And I don't want it to be just one, two, right, right in that one spot, though that sometimes happens, but I want to just at least get a couple bites within a larger area. That kind of shows me, okay, there's, there's the potential to be more fish here. If I can get a bite pretty quick and if I can get more than one. And then generally, I'm trying to move. Like if I get a couple bites in the area and the, and and they're better, like that the target range quality, like it's let's say ten pounds, twelve pounds is good. If I'm getting, you know, they're two pounders, then I'm going to say, okay, this is a good area. Definitely, just I, I'll just pick the trolling motor up and leave. I, I tried, I tried back in the day to just kind of uncover everything within that area, 
but I try to, I don't do that as much anymore. I just kind of leave that for tournament day and try to figure that out as you go. The, the bad part about that is a lot of times you won't know where the best section is. Like, cause let's say I go down this left-hand side and I get a couple bites there and the, the right side looks just like it, but I just say, forget it. I'm out of here. I'm just going to go. I, I might get there on tournament morning and there'll be a guy on the right side and that 10, he ends up catching 18 pounds and I have 13. So yeah. that, that, that's the catch 22, but I, I definitely try not to show, you know, the fish, my bait too much. I want, I want them to be pretty excited about it. I, I tried cause I've, I recognize that pressure is going to be a big deal. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's kind of my approach to as far as like finding fish and trying to get an understanding. And now I try not to set the hook on a lot of fish, um, but I definitely want to see what I'm dealing with. Cause if you catch one and it's like that one eyed bass that looks like it's, you know, been living around, you know, and it's been not doing too hot. That's probably not a good sign, you know, but if you're catching nice, healthy quality fish, then you're probably got, you know, you're probably around a school of fish. So that's, that's kind of my, my thoughts as far as like locating fish. Um, but I, I try, you know, I definitely try to cover water. I try to push myself to cover way more water than I, I probably should have, because I feel like more times than not, um, I end up going, man, I didn't check this. I didn't go here. I don't even know. And there's usually a place on the lake that's got, that's going off better than everywhere else. Mm-hmm. That this bottom third or the upper third or the middle section. So I want to expose myself as to many as to as many of those places I possibly can too. So that's kind of my rough outlook or, or framework for how I like to, to, to attack practice. I think I may answer your question if not. Yeah, no. So then go into tournament mode. Now it's Thursday morning and you're going back to that spot that you had a couple good bites in, but you burned down. How are you fishing it differently than you did when you, when you practice through there? Well, I'll always have a cut. Like if I got bit doing one thing, I'm going to have a couple of things that I think, well, if it gets, if it, you know, if during the course of practice it got tougher, I want may have a couple things tied on more finessey type stuff to kind of capitalize on the fact that I believe they're just an area where there are fish, not necessarily, you know, they're, they're eating a jig or they're eating a crankbait or something like that. But um, just that, that I'm in an area that has a population of fish. That's the, the number one thing for me when I'm thinking about. Um, so then I'm going to go in there and I'm going to fish it real methodically and okay. because I'm not a, I'm not a guy that fishes really fast. I'm, I'm more of a single hook guy. Um, and I like to try to pick apart everything, different angles, um, leave it in there, fish it slower, try some different presentations, what rate of fall, um, you know, maybe, maybe they want stuck to the bottom. Just try to mix it up because now I'm trying to identify, okay, what's, what's the exact presentation that they're looking for? How can I present the bait in a manner that these fish are really receptive to? That's, that's going to be what I end up doing. And then just fishing slower and more methodical. So if you go, th- it takes you 15 minutes to go through an area, you get a couple bites in practice, you're spending 45 minutes to an hour on that same stretch in the tournament. If you've, if you've deemed that it has potential. Yes, but I also, I want to get bit pretty quick too. I, okay. you know, not pretty quick, but you know, once I've gone through the best section, I believe is the best section. I'm, I'm, I'm going to just, I'm going to probably try to leave. I might fish in case they moved off of the best, what I think the best section or where they were previously, but then I'll increase my boat speed and kind of go into a little bit more practice mode. But when I'm in the area that I feel like should be the best section, then I'm going to slow down and definitely try a lot of different things. 
that's a really good point that you made about you'll look at what the fish looks like in practice when you catch it. Like, does it look like a resident fish? Is it like the fish that's like been on that dock for seven years and it's like just lives there or fish that are moving in and out? Are you looking for the color of the fish? Like if you have dark green fish that are mixed with light fish, does that mean it's a transitionary where you have fish coming out of deep water and fish that are resident there or fish that are coming in and out of the grass there? Like what are some of the, the things that you're looking at that, determines that hey there's going to be is it a bait deal is it what what is it that makes you say this has fish both coming going and staying i really like it when i see fish that look healthy they are not missing scales uh -huh. they don't look like they've missed many meals those types of things obviously they weigh more but that tells me that they're in there for an for a reason there it's just not that one resident fish that i'm actually on an area or in an area that fish are utilizing mm -hmm you know, on a piece of cover, a piece of structure where they're, you know, this is, this has got high potential for there being more than one, but also uh, for the, for our, the ability to catch a big one there too. So I definitely like fish that look good, look healthy. Um, and, um, and yeah, and it depends on the time of year. Cause sometimes I'm just looking for the onesie twosies, but, um, but at the same time, I, I you know, I want to try to identify an area that's got a lot of fish that's got potential for having multiple fish in an area. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know you're a pros pro, so you'll never like bring this stuff up. You'll never talk about it. But if you look at this year, you had 101st in Alabama, then a 72nd, then you went 21st, 14th, and 46th. So you're halfway through the year. You've taken a 14th that's managed your your 101st. So I mean, you're sitting really, really well. I, I just want to let people know this is how volatile this sport or competitive activity, whatever you want to say is. Cause then you go to the St. Lawrence river and everybody sees 15 pounds and 198th place. I mean, you are fighting, you are in the mix to make the elite series this year. And you have stuff there that is a hundred percent out of your control. Nothing you can do that totally derails your season and then forces you to fish for the win in the remaining three where you have the triple digit finish, but completely you have something 100% out of your control on a roll halfway through the season. To me, it just, it seems like there is no justice in this sport like that. Like, and, and now your whole season's derailed. Now you're not going to get on and say, Hey, I had some catastrophic failures here and wasn't able to make it back in. And it had absolutely nothing to do with me. And I was catching the crap out of them and thought I could have 18 to 20 and never even got to fish for my fish. You're just going to sit there and take that L the 198th. But I mean, in reality, that's how thin the line is between getting on a roll for the second half of the season and completely being screwed. Yeah. The over the years, there's stuff that just happens that's just completely out of your control. You could do everything right, you know, maintain everything, all your gear, all your equipment, your boat, your electronics, everything. And and there's there's just stuff that happens that's just completely out of your control. That doesn't make it any easier to swallow. But um, but yeah, I, I mean that that yeah that was rough, man. That was. I'm not saying to go into it. I'm just letting people know that like. Yeah. I mean, and then it, and then it, the Harris chain, I, I didn't make it back in time for weigh-in because, um, because I didn't, I didn't get back to the lock on time. Oh, I didn't know that. You missed the yeah. lock at the Harris chain? 
Yeah, I used the lock at the at the Harris chain. I ended up being 11 minutes late, and I had nine plus pounds or something. Without I, a I would have you. I would have missed it by like nine ounces or something. But regardless, just another one of those things. You're like, <laughs> man. I, so the the day before, I'm like, I lock through and I get back 30 minutes to go. I can't catch a fish in Big Harris. So I'm like, well, today I'm going to push it and fish right to where I think I can still make it back conservatively. Of course, I'm totally wrong. There's more boats at the lock and I'm late. So, um, of course, everyone was pushing it on day two. It has changed the last season. Everyone's trying to catch, you know, what they can catch and do the best that they can. Um, There's really, you know, you're either in the points or out of the points. And if you're out of the points like me, you're just trying to do the, you know, have the best finishing and get the biggest paycheck that you can. And of course that ended up, I pushed it too hard and I generally push it. My wife hates it. I really, See, you know, I don't, I'm scared to push it. And I feel like that's not very professional of me because like three times this year, I, I'm the king of when I feel hopeless with four in the box, like a magic fish will just fly out of the sky and be like, Oh my God. Like what? I I got a limit that uh, don't tell anybody, but that was the luckiest limit ever. That happened twice this year. But then I'm also just straight paranoid after a couple things that have happened at a Toyota championship. And then with some at, at Oneida, I'm like, okay, I could go in and guarantee that I've got a solid bag and I'm good to go and be four or five minutes early. And like, I'm scared to push it, but all the top guys push it. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've seen Bobby Lane. Like, I know that he's what flight he's in and he's like, and he's got like 21 seconds to make it in and he's power idling through. And it's just another day in the office. Like, how do you get comfortable being uncomfortable with that five minutes left? Oh, I don't, I I don't know how you become uncomfortable. I mean, how, how you become comfortable with it. I just know, I mean, initially I was that guy that I came in early and, and I fished around the ramp, but of that's course, me. And, and sometimes that's a good thing. And you can usually fill your limit or catch one, the fish you need or whatever like that. Mm-hmm. But more times than not over the years, I noticed that the guys that win act like, like, you know, it's like almost like they have this, you know, all a domino effect where everything has to go right. And for whatever reason, it always just goes right. And they make it in, they either, you know, have a great finish, a top 10, a win, whatever it is. And I'm like, you know what, if you want to expect to do better than the, you know, the experiences you've had, you've got to start leaning on it. You've got to start yeah. pushing harder. And unfortunately, sometimes that ends up. Being <laughs> yeah, because I learned that at Watts Bar. So on on the first day at Watts Bar, I had four. I was I had forgotten how far I had to idle back in this area. And it was an idle only zone. And I had my alarm set and the alarm goes off. And I'm like, well, what the hell does it matter? I've got four for like six pounds like and i was i knew i was around fish so i just kept fishing and then i was four minutes past the time i wanted to leave well i'd set it so i had uh eight to ten minutes of extra time right so Mm. i just kept fishing and fishing now 99 percent of the time i'd have packed my stuff up and went and then i catch a 17 and a half incher eight minutes past when i was supposed to leave and i mean the bell went off and i was like dude what why do I just go back and mill around? Well, I mean, because I've been late before and then I've gone to start the engine and the shift actuators out and then you have time to find it. But at the same time, I was like, well, I just had a decent limit and it was in 60th instead of 150th because I literally stayed five minutes past I would nor- when I would normally stay. So that kind of right at the end of the year made me think like, I need to, I need to rethink this. 
Yeah, I, I definitely have tried to push it and um, over the years, uh, you know, more so in the in the last 10, 10 or so years, just really just trying to make everything happen. Of course, there at Harris Chain, I only had four. So I'm really trying to push it. I know I knew I needed just one more and I'm getting paid um, or at least in my head. That's what I mm -hmm. thought. It just really depends on the scenario. If you've got a big bag pushing, it's kind of silly. But if you're in a chance, if you have a chance to win, um, yeah, I mean, I can remember not pushing it one time on Lake Mead and uh, coming in early because it was forecasted to blow and miss winning a boat by 13 one hundredths of an ounce. And and I thought, man, if I just stayed up there and cold one time, I get a boat. But I didn't. Mm -hmm. I came in and I was like, man, it's supposed to blow. I better get in. I've got a decent bag. I don't, you know, da, 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 da. And so um, trying to, you know, trying to just fish that clock out to the last remaining second and, 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 and put, put, keep yourself in the best possible area for doing the best possible that you can in that event is, is, is important. It really, really is. It is a adrenaline rush when you look and you're a mile and a half away and you've got two minutes. <laughs> There's no adrenaline oh. rush, no adrenaline rush like it. The worst part is like when you've got a long run and you're like, I'm not going to make it. There's no way I'm going to make it. Then you think another 10 miles goes by and you're like, I am going to make it. And yeah. then another 10 miles goes by and you're like, I don't think so. It's just the worst. Like your stomach is just turning. And then when you make it, you're like, yes, <laughs> it's the greatest <laughs> feeling on earth. Yeah. Like, I can't tell you, like <laughs> there's, a, there's a couple barge operators, like those big giant ships on the St. Lawrence where, I mean, I had timed it and it did, wasn't blowing, but I forgot Friday barge traffic. I mean, I was calling those barges oh, a, a lot of bad names on the way back because I had that thing opened up. Cause I, that was one of the places where I was like, dude, if I get, if I can have 30 more seconds with my Ned rig down there, I got a legit shot at a six pounder. And then I was like, all right, we got to go. And then I'm like, barge, barge, barge. And I'm just, Wow, boo, wow, boo. And I just told my co-angler, I said, I'm sorry, dude. I said, I said, we might break some stuff. I said, but I'm gonna have thirty two hundred dollars to fix it. So <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. The competitors, yeah, you gotta like just keep that competitive nature. I mean, we wanna just I I think there's a period where we're like, dude, this is good enough, but I mean we just gotta keep the throttle down. Anything else before I let you go, James? This has been a, a eclectic discussion kind of all over the map, but I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, looking forward to the 2024, you know, getting back out there, hopefully having a much better season, some redemption for 2024 for both of us. You're still guiding, right? You're on the water on Fork and around there guiding all winter. No? no yes? Generally, the like I just had a trip last week, but I probably won't get another call till February. It just generally shuts down. People trade in their rods for gun. I mean, their yeah, their rods for guns and go hunting. Um, used to be used to get more calls this you know in the late fall, but not as much anymore. But yes, yeah, so a handful of trips. I probably do twenty or so trips a year, maybe thirty. What does a trip look like this time of the year now? Like if you were like. I don't hunt. I want to get out there. You could probably, you know, obviously it looks like you could kind of pick your date since you aren't, you know, jam packed, but like, what are we talking about? Like fish wise and technique wise, like now through January, February. Well, I just went, went out last week and I mean, I think we probably caught, uh, you know, 15 to 18 fish and had, a, you know, a, like some, a five and maybe, maybe one, almost six. And, oh, and wow. just, yeah, it was, it's actually pretty good on four. No, 
no. Oh, no. different lake. You don't want yeah. to name it. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, a handful of other lakes around here. Okay. Uh, Orcs actually been really tough lately. It's been, um, it's uh, you know people say, hey, I, I want to go to Fork, and and this is just being honest. Yeah. If you want a lot of bites. Fork's really not the place to get a lot of bites. If you want to catch a big one, I would say, yeah, that's probably the best place to catch a big one. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, but if they do want to get in touch with you. I mean, it's a. I've I've spent a day in the boat with you. We actually did go to Fork and freaking smashed them in the winter time. Remember that? That was a lot of fun. On chatterbaits, we we're skipping yeah. chatterbaits around laydowns and under docks, and I mean, caught the crap out of them. It was bitterly cold too that day. Like I mean, it like was. hats and gloves. Yeah, yeah. That was so much fun. Yeah, I think the water was down. Yeah, it was a. It was a. It was definitely special. That was. I was. Cool. Uh, I think that was when I was working for bass inside freelancing for Bassmaster to do bass insider articles wasn't that a deal where we did like some bass insider articles and then i would always parlay that into hey let's fish for four hours yeah i think we did i think we did a couple things we did some work and we did and we had fun yeah it's cool. yeah. yeah uh but what's the best way to get a hold of you if they want to go out on one of your mystery lakes uh my website james or social media instagram facebook and uh you know youtube so i'm all over the place you can find me yeah. fantastic all right i appreciate it james i guess i will see you heck that's like february 1st isn't it it's just a couple months away oh my gosh <laughs> are you ready well it's actually it's actually three months away no but... i'm not ready i gotta go to table rock for a writer's or a, a uh employee deal like i'm fishing this week so right after the uh right after the toyota series was there but uh i'm looking forward to that so i'm trying to get everything i actually I screwed up, dude. I have, uh, I'm new to the, not new. I've decided at age 39 that I should learn like how the boat power works. So <laughs> like, I mean, aside from just plug it in and everything works, like I want to know. So I've understood like, you know, parallel and how the batteries juice and AGM versus the lead acid stuff versus the lithium. Anyway, long story short, I've got the, the, uh, pro guides i get home from the last turn of it which would have been lake of the ozarks and i plugged the boat in but i didn't plug it into the wall so i had the boat plugged into the outlet the outlet wasn't or the cord wasn't plugged into the outlet then i fish multiple times out of other buddies boats so i open up the rod boxes don't turn any of the power off so i drain the agms like done gone Ooh. like so i've spent i spent all day yesterday then learning how to shock my AGMs back into accepting a charge. It takes like 12 a, hours. It takes 12 hours? At least for me, it did. Because I plugged it in, and then I'm looking at my power pole charge, which then I had to update that, which I didn't understand. So I'm looking at that, seeing where my voltage is, and I'm calling like a bunch of different people on Sunday mornings, being like, hey, I know you have a family in life, but my batteries aren't charging. <laughs> and... uh I ended up like putting the X, like charging it for six hours. It wasn't. Then I called Scott from the bass tank who was explaining to me why it just doesn't recharge it. He's like, there's this pressurized like water and it has to like trickle charge to then to take the charge. So then I put the external charger on and then I got everything and I woke up this morning and everything's green. Awesome. You're ready to go. Yeah. There's definitely uh man power. That's what got me was at a, battery at st lawrence that just decided it was gonna go nowhere else and that was the cranking battery so that's had to jump it like six or seven times on the way back maybe not that many five times on the way back while i was late but 
yeah, keeping and keeping, you know, on top of those top of the batteries. It's funny. It, <laughs> batteries are something that no one talks about, but unless there's a problem. Yeah. Batteries <laughs> are like a transmission or a referee in a game. Like if you're talking about the referees, not good. Uh, like when OU got totally screwed at the end because they're leaving the Big 12 and then there was the pass interference call that they didn't call so that OSU could still be relevant in the Big 12 costing OU a chance at the national championship. But we're not going to talk about that. Or a transmission in a vehicle where, uh, you know, you never talk about the transmission until you have transmission issues. Exactly. Same with batteries. All right, James, I'm going to let you go. Man, I was going to go the whole show without it and I don't know how that popped in there, but I got, got that in there at the end <laughs> with the... Uh, I'm, I'm not a rabid college football fan at all. It's all good. All right. I'm gonna let you go, James. <laughs> Enjoyed it. All right. See ya. See ya. All right. That was James Zingemeyer. Take our final break of the show. When we come back, talk about what we have going on for the rest of the week. BTL on a Monday. Having confidence in your tackle while on the water is one of the main things to success. In my opinion, in the last couple of years with Denali, I've had just that from anything from spinning rods, casting rods, tungsten products, even now the casting and spinning reels, I have the confidence to go out there and get the job done and know that all my equipment is gonna handle it and do it just the way I want it. The thing about Denali is you've got great quality products at a great price point, so make sure you check them out. Shoreline Boat and RV, dock rash, storm damage, collision repair, that deep scratch or gouge from trying to access that secret creek. Shoreline Boat and RV can get your prize possession back in mint condition and looking good on the water, fast. All repairs are done in-house, so they're able to get your boat or RV back to brand new, quickly. All Shoreline's work comes with a rock-solid warranty. Find out more at ShorelineBoatAndRV.com. Kansas City, Austin, and Tulsa. I'm the kind of guy that never leaves a house without a pocket knife, and Gamagatsu's come out with the EDC series of knives. EDC stands for everyday carry, so whether you're on the water or off, you can always have it with you. The best thing about it to me is that assisted open feature. With this D2 blade, you've got it right here at your fingertips, so if you can't find your scissors, you need to cut a knot, you need to cut your braid, you've always got it. Make sure you check it out. Never leave home without your Gamagatsu EDC knife. Born in Japan, using technology, innovation, and precision, Sunline produces the widest selection of fishing lines at the most technologically advanced line factory in the world. Manufactured at the strictest tolerances to produce victories at the highest levels of tournament bass fishing, from household names like Christie, Swindle, and Cruz, to young guns like Cook, Logan, New, and Welcher, they all trust Sunline to take them to the top of the leaderboard. Choose the line that will give you the strength to guarantee your confidence. Sunline. All right, we are back wrapping things up on a Monday. A uh, little bit of a different show for this week. I'm going to have to record a couple of shows. Uh, Rick Harris, fresh off of a uh, top 20 finish at the Toyota Series. He's also one of those guys uh, down in Texas, uh, works for Hill Country Hammers Guide Service. So uh, he's actually he's actually sitting in my living room right now waiting on me to finish the show. Uh, we're going to record a show that will run uh, tomorrow on the 7th. Talking all things uh, Big Bass Toyota Series. He's making the jump to the MLF Invitationals next year. Uh, kind of a cool career arc that that he's been on over the last three or four years. And good to see when a good good person has good things happen to him. Uh, no show on Wednesday. I will be at Table Rock. And then Thursday, quarter show with Uncle Frank. He will be back. And then uh, uh, we'll be back next Monday. But uh, next Monday after the show, I head to 
uh, Memphis to tour uh, St. Jude. Uh, obviously had a uh, developing a really good relationship with St. Jude uh, Children's Research Hospital uh, through the Dick Hiley St. Jude Bass Classic uh, that I talk about on a regular basis. And one of the things they did after this year, Gretchen from St. Jude was like, hey, uh, we'd like you uh, and Adam Bartuzek from the Crappie Chronicles to come tour uh, St. Jude and and see what it's all about. So everyone that's been there has told me that that is a, uh, that that is a life-changing experience. So I am... Uh, I'm really uh, looking forward to seeing that and uh, meeting some of the people that make a difference in uh, a lot of these kids' lives and families' lives. So, uh, all right, that's all we got for today. Uh, we'll see everyone tomorrow. Big shout out to James Zingemeyer. Hey, if you guys want to go winter fishing and you're in Texas, like he's a good dude to call, man. Great family guy, very educational on the water. Uh, we'll sit down. We'll. He's a good dude to be on the water with, and I've known James a long time. So that's all we got for today. We'll see everybody tomorrow. Later.